0: You know, my perspective is it is the best way It is a uh, sort of imprecise measure, but it's the best way for your practice and your department to sort of compete across the country and for you to have an idea of like how good are we and how do we compete across the country with other practices of
1: similar size and a similar, you know, case mix. Hey, it's justin harvey thanks for tuning in to the anesthesia and pain management success podcast with apm success we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business practice management personal finance and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians we work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts thanks for listening Welcome to another episode of APM Success. Happy 2024. I have a special guest today, Dr. Josh Lumley. Dr. Lumley is somebody who comes with a wealth of experience in a number of different practice settings and even different industries. And I'm excited to talk with him today about his career journey, about where he sees the future of anesthesia going, and to be able to learn from him. Welcome, Dr. Lumley. Yeah, thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. Uh, it's nice to be here. Uh, before we hit record, we were reflecting on our um, mutual experience in the... Uh, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania area. Actually, a big game this past week with the Steelers and Bengals. I know, I
0: know. (laughs) well it's you know what you're kicking me while i'm down but uh oh, having I'm said sorry. so yes i was disappointed i was disappointed that that ohio state uh lost to michigan michigan played that, ball, that flawless too, game. That too. <laughs> so for the michigan fans that are on the podcast you deserve to win you played really really good ball having said that i grew up in austin um and so i'm cheering for the longhorns uh this weekend this is going to be broadcast in in january so we'll all know what's going to happen but Go Longhorns! Hopefully, you win uh, the Big Twelve title this this weekend, and you can sneak your way into the College
1: Football Playoff. Maybe for starters, Dr. Lomley, give us a little context on your current career sort of track and and your scope of responsibilities. Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, my elevator pitch for my 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 role right now is I'm a practicing clinical anesthesiologist. I would definitely I would define myself as mid career. Graduated residency in 2009. So crazy to think that I've been. Practicing anesthesia for almost 15 years now, Uh, board certified anesthesiologist um, that practices clinically, but I'm also chief quality officer of a large anesthesia management company. I oversee the clinical practice of about 3,000 anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists across 27 states and over 250 practices. I really focus on three main areas. Uh, It is driving standardized clinical practice across the location. So if you're getting your total knee done in Philadelphia, Detroit, Dallas, We know that the anesthetic experience um, and and overall quality is pretty replicable across those various clinical environments. Secondarily, uh, pushing to become a patient safety organization. And then number three is uh, reporting quality metrics to CMS and third-party payers. So overall, a lot of difficult decisions, but um, enjoy doing it
1: and uh, it's it's a nice balance to being in the ORs and taking care of patients. I have a lot of questions and part of me, obviously I'm not Please. A, I'm not a clinician and I'm not a consultant. Yeah. I sort of play a consultant on TV every now and then, but I'm always interested in understanding the business of anesthesia and medicine and the economics of the healthcare system and just operationally too. So I think this is a yep. great opportunity for listeners to understand how someone sort of from your perspective is trying to roll out at a, on a broad scale, you know, quality and consistency sort of uh, checks and balances and policies and procedures and all that. I'm curious, what are, you know, if you think about 3000 clinicians and 27 states, what are the biggest challenges that you face in terms of creating a consistent anesthetic experience and outcome? I mean, right now,
0: um, I, both our practice and the practices of all the folks that are on this podcast that are listening uh, is it is an exquisitely tight labor market. Uh, it is very difficult to have a fully staffed practice um, right now. You know, there's it, it's it's kind of a a, a really difficult environment uh, between increasing labor costs. So compensation is increasing dramatically. Sometimes, you know. I think uh, the ASA reported that last year, uh, average salary increase was somewhere in the neighborhood of like eight to 14% across the country. This is very similar with nurse anesthetists and AA's as well. And at the same time, a difficult reimbursement uh, environment, whereas where margins and reimbursements on a pay per unit basis for the types of procedures and the care that we provide is being like reduced and reduced and reduced. So when you think about like the basic economics of anesthesia, uh, it is revenue from cases and up against labor costs. And it used to be that revenue might exceed labor costs or might match labor costs but what we're seeing now is that labor costs are dramatically uh, increasing above those labor costs and so you're having to go to hospital partners asc partners and say you got to make up the difference um, and that is a really difficult conversation to have
1: i have a hypothesis about this and i i'm i don't usually get a chance to talk to somebody who's so smart in these areas to ask this question do you, do you view what's happening as a, a natural correction as a result of the sort of shifting of the reimbursement over time and removing value from the physician labor component of the calculation and moving it to the facility side. I mean, honestly, I think it is a, just an exquisitely.
0: I'm a little bit more cynical, and I think it is an environment where it's just very, very difficult to negotiate with payers on the national basis or at the you know on the commercial side of things increasingly, as there's kind of a level playing field that everybody is sort of essentially paid the same um, with the elimination of or, or sorry, with the advent of the No Surprise Billing Act this past year, you know, it's a level playing field for everyone, everyone is, you know, there's no secret sauce. They just sort of say everybody gets kind of paid the same. Increasingly value, quality, the type of product that you deliver is on the tip of the tongues of of both payers as well as hospital partners. Having said that, you know they still hold the keys to deciding you know how much you're going to get reimbursed it's it's uh it's a really i would say i'm i'm it sounds pessimistic i am optimistic on the future of medicine i'm optimistic on the future of anesthesia very bullish on it having said that uh it's a challenging market right now on the
1: staffing side and on the reimbursement side i've observed all these same trends who is the loser in this dynamic I, and I know with the no surprises act it was always it depends on like I think there's not a lot of people that understand who the stakeholders are and like it's a and who the hostages are uh, yeah and I know that doctors and hospitals are often lumped together in the press like doctors and hospitals versus insurance companies and I, I think that's a mistake but as these pressures have been exerting themselves in your practice and the scope of sort of your perspective, I mean, I'm worried about some of the like the safety net hospitals or hospitals without the margin and without the ability to give you the extra two million dollar stipend because like you can't afford to recruit anesthesiologists because you can't get the reimbursement. Yeah, um, it yeah. seems like access is going to be a big problem in like 2024 and beyond. I'm curious how you, especially being in yeah. Ohio where you are and you've got that sort yeah. of the, that area of the country where there's a, a lot of that.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, well, wow, uh, uh, those are very astute observations. So in the thick of it, it feels like clinicians and their practice and their practices are the ones that are experiencing the the difficult, the, the that are kind of experiencing most of the friction right now uh, with the current uh, environment. Having said that, like, ORs have to run. For the most part, labor and delivery units have to be staffed, and so it is our hospital partners that are bearing a lot of of those challenges right now. Now, their reimbursement on procedures and things like that has not been hit as hard as anesthesia, so fortunately, you know, overall margins have improved post pandemic there. And so there hopefully is some willingness to kind of say, this is what it's gonna take to staff our operating rooms. That said on the access side, you know, with our rural, some rural hospitals across the country are closing labor and delivery units just because the economics don't don't go around the block there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're starting to see, you know, There was actually an article in New York Times uh, this summer about, you know, basically the West Texas all the way down to the Rio Grande Valley, a lot of hospitals that are shutting down labor and delivery services. And so some women are having to drive 150 miles to, to hospitals to, you know, receive maternal care and obstetric care. So, yes, at some of, you know, both small and large hospitals are having to make these, you know, very difficult decisions right now on what is how do we how do we continue to stay open providing services to our patients uh in in a market where the economics are 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 pretty difficult
1: in terms of the quality metrics that you are observing implementing Mm -hmm. trying to manage what are the you know some of the key uh focuses of of your work in terms of quality and where do you exert your time and effort in that regard
0: yeah uh i mean you know, there's uh, I, we try to be as uniform in what we report out to CMS and third party payers, and those tend to be um, MIPS measures so, merit based incentive payment schedule measures that are ascertained and measured on every single case, um, whether it's an open heart cardiopulmonary bypass and your you know avoidance of. Uh, of cerebral hyperthermia or sterile line placement, all the way to an ambulatory procedure on an ASA 1 or 2, and you're assessing, you know, giving that patient multimodal postoperative nausea and vomiting pro- prophylaxis, but we'll report those out. In some of our larger facilities that have an anesthesia information management systems (AIMS) platforms, where so the, the the electronic anesthesia record, we're able to do deeper dive on on metrics like length of stay and PACU, unexplained admission prolonged uh, reintubation, anesthesia-specific complications, um, it's a little bit easier to do that with, with those sorts of platforms than it is with uh, a paper chart. So a whole host of measures
1: uh, that we use to kind of drive continuous improvement. Can you help me understand the difference between sort of a MIPS paradigm and a X number of units to start, X units per hour, X units for a procedure, and mm-hmm. any other sort of complexity modifiers? Yeah. So that
0: latter part x units to start x units per unit time um that still persists. There is a very gradual shift away from or, or away from maybe let's uh let's say procedure-based billing towards value-based reimbursement, it is gonna take some time. We've been talking about this since the the mid-2000s and it it still persists. I think there was a lot of momentum towards uh, basically uh, the way MIPS work is small percentage on the bottom, they get penalized, a group in the middle based on performance that sort of are status quo. You need to get penalized, you don't get a bonus. And then there's a group at the top that are rated by exceptional and they get a bump up to 9% on their CMS reimbursements. The dream scenario is that you can then use that performance to sort of leverage better payment uh, with, with commercial payers. But even, even if that's not the case, if you've got of your patients are Medicaid Medicare. You know, 40% of them are are Medicare. That's a big bump if you can get that. They threw that out the window during COVID um, because didn't want anybody to get penalized. So 23 is the first year that the penalty is in place and the first year that we are going to be allowed to actually get up to 9% of a bonus. Um, And so it would be on top of the build blank for procedure build blank for complexity build blank per unit time and then do you get the bonus on top of that uh, based on your clinical performance and the hope is that that sort of opens the door uh, to more of a a value-based paradigm in the future where you have to report these metrics you have to uh, or you're going to get penalized if you don't and you got to do really well with them based on you know, a whole host of metrics and and whether or not they, you know, they, how they impact the patient down their care continuum.
1: Has there been any observed connection between sort of the MIPS reporting with Medicare and commercial contracts and reimbursement? You know, at this point, no.
0: Um, and, and so uh, there are some folks that are pretty skeptical about it. Uh, you know, my perspective is it is the best way that is a uh, sort of imprecise measure, but it's the best way for your practice and your department to sort of compete across the country. And for you to have an idea of like, how good are we? And how do we compete across the country with other practices of similar size and a similar, you know, case mix?
1: Yeah. Thinking about reimbursement and You know looking at the the fee schedule every year it's like oh there's another three percent there's another three percent there's another four percent It's like well nine percent is great if you nail it (laughs) but that's only on the percentage that you get medicare and honestly like if it's a really impactful again this i try to not be too cynical but if you have a huge chunk of medicare and you're really trying to get this to work for your department because of all the medicare people you have you're probably having trouble paying your bills anyway, because you don't have enough commercial contracts to keep things afloat.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the the one point on that is Medicare reimbursement to the hospital, to the surgeon for the procedure itself is still quite good. The the where you know the 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 difficult part is taking it on the chin um as a department of anesthesia it is just unique to anesthesiology those reimbursements um again the cost center for the hospital and for an ambulance, certainly an ambulatory surgery center before the hospital is the operating rooms and so it you know, you've got to have the individuals to provide the anesthesia to ensure that surgeries happen, whether that's at a, at a hospital, an inpatient facility, or an ambulatory surgery center. And so, you know, it, it is unfortunate that it is pretty isolated to the Department of Anesthesia in terms of reimbursement. Having said that, you know, our hospital partners are savvy enough to realize, like, Kind of, it is what it is. This is what we've got to have. And so mm-hmm. when the Department of Anesthesia comes and says, you know, we got 60% CMS uh, or 50% uh, Medicare, Medicaid patients, and this is what it's going to take for us to be continually able to staff this place. This is what the stipend looks like. You know, it's a, it's a difficult conversation, but it is, it's kind of part and parcel with keeping the ORs open.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with anesthesia billing, it would be Uh, a common practice for the anesthesia department to bill based on their labor they get reimbursed based on the the revenue associated with the providing the care to that patient based on whoever their insurer is often this creates a shortfall to you can't pay an anesthesiologist enough based on just doing you know it's like 30 bucks a unit or something which is 120 dollars an hour at the revenue before you pay any expenses for associated with anesthesiologist employment and so it is then incumbent upon the hospital to make up that delta between what medicare right. is going to pay and what it costs to have an anesthesia department and that delta is known as the stipend which is the money that the hospital throws on top of whatever the anesthesia provider can recoup from insurers in order to keep things running and so that's exactly what, right what we're describing here is the increasing stipend over time and the hospital, I guess, like bearing more and more of that financial burden as anesthesia, the practice of anesthesia itself is reimbursed more and more poorly by CMS, which just makes it more expensive to run ORs, which is why it's going to become a luxury good here. I mean, it, it's already happening, I think. Yeah. yeah and, and then I, I would just say, you know,
0: to to put some gasoline on that fire, then you also have labor costs that have gone up uh, that have increased salaries for anesthesiologists, salaries for nurse anesthetists that have increased. And so that labor cost, you know, table, uh, you know, chunk of the pie has increased, you know, while the reimbursement side of it has decreased.
1: So we we discussed the idea of different practice models and in in Mm -hmm. the context of what's going on right now, You know, with I think MIPS being more and more important, uh, you know, more and more boomers becoming Medicare eligible, being able to capture any bit of revenue is going to be important. I'm curious your reflection on sort of the the baseline infrastructural requirement in terms of the practice of anesthesia. Obviously, North Star is a big organization, well resourced to be able to Mm -hmm. uh, capture all of the uh, capture, document, analyze and improve all the quality metrics we're talking about. I am curious to just hear kind of how you process that and other clinical models and what the future looks like. Yeah. Well, so,
0: you know, during COVID, there was an acceleration, so so hospitals shut down, hospital operating rooms shut down. That driver, that financial driver for uh, hospitals was largely closed ambulatory surgery centers, you know, there are surgeons that still wanted to operate. There are patients that still wanted to have their procedures done in a safe manner. One of the great things about all of us as anesthesiologists is that, you know, we continue to provide better care, you know, better techniques to reduce length of stay, to reduce complications, to, you know, alleviate pain in an opiate-free sort of environment. And so a lot of Previously inpatient procedures or procedures that were done in hospitals shifted over to ambulatory surgery centers. And uh, a lot of our surgeon partners sort of said, if you're able to do this in 2020 and early 2021, I'm never taking these cases back. I'm going to keep them right here at my ambulatory surgery center. And so that that volume leaked out and it's going to be tough to get that volume back. It, It may never come back. So, what was left in hospitals was a little bit more challenging patient population, difficult both from a pair mix standpoint, but also just, you know, maybe multi system organ dysfunction patients that aren't eligible for going to an ambulatory surgery center. Um, and then, frankly, just volume lower than what it was before. Sort of what that gets us to uh, is a roundabout way of me saying, like, that's okay, but. The previous dynamic of where, you know, maybe you had volume was here pre-pandemic and now it's here post-pandemic, but you still had operating rooms to staff here, and now you got volume here. You've got to have a very difficult conversation with a hospital partner to say, you know, you had volume here, volume is here now, it's lower, and you had number of operating rooms to match the original number, but now volume may be down, you know, 10%, 12%, whatever it is. It might be beneficial for us to discuss actually closing operating rooms or reducing service in a couple of those operating rooms. So that, you know, we've got increased utilization in those operating rooms, knowing that staffing it is pretty high, is is expensive. Keeping the lights on there are pretty expensive, just OR oh, costs in general are expensive. So maybe instead of 50%, 40% utilization, let's shrink the hours down to four or shrink the number of days down to three or whatever it is trying to get that number jacked up to like you know 80 90 yeah. percent um, while at the same time you know balancing the ebbs and flow of the operating room and the needs of trauma etc that just sort of come you know at random periods but trying to stat the ors more efficiently post covid uh post leakage of
1: volume to an ASC. And buy a couple of ASCs in the meantime if you don't already have them as a hospital, since yeah. that is the way the way that the secular winds are blowing. That's uh, correct. And insurers are incentivized in many cases to uh, That's exactly push correct. things yeah. that way because of cost. That's correct. Yeah. So how does that impact anesthesiologists? I mean, so the good news is there's a.
0: Insane amount of demand um, for our services, and uh, I believe that there will continue to be a huge amount of demand for our services and the type of care that we provide. The fact that we continually uh, are continuously improve, and where I kind of do sort of see uh, is, you know opportunity for us is um, sort of roles like myself of being like a consultant to your hospital partners to say like you know, let's, let's go deep on the data here and look at uh, OR operations and figure out uh, a better way to staff it more efficiently. I've, you know, I've got a. a a tight labor market. You hospital CEO, you hospital COO have a tight labor market in terms of, you know, or nursing staffing and perioperative staffing. Like, let's align our resources to, uh, to, to, unfortunately, make some difficult decisions. But on the back end, you know, for more efficient, I think, you know, rising tide lifts all boats.
1: Yeah. Can you talk about some of the ways that you most productively collaborate with hospital executives where where you see the biggest perhaps blind spots you know it's easy to like it, it, you know healthcare is very siloed and i think that's kind of by mm-hmm. design I, I i see one of the things of the people i follow on linkedin about you know the healthcare analysts and things they say uh people say healthcare is broken healthcare is actually a system that is perfectly designed to achieve the outcome it's currently achieving and that's a little bit of a you could call it cynical you could call it conspiratorial but it i'll just sort of set that here and we can leave that on the table as we're having this conversation in terms of your interaction with hospital executives where are you finding that you're bringing the most insight or what are you hearing from them in terms of their pain points and can you just help us understand that dialogue yeah uh, i mean i think um the the first is just
0: the is is now uh is not speaking jargon to your hospital partner and Kind of getting to a point to understand that like not all volume is good volume we have to take care of our patients but we have to do it ideally in a manner that is as predictable as possible and part of this is you know again presenting data, walking through, you know, sort of by time of day, where are there opportunities? You know, Dr. So-and-so likes his block to start at 10 in the morning and run until 6 p.m. Like, how can we incentivize this surgeon to maybe kick it up to eight, to seven, even so that I can shrink in that after hours uh, utilization, that witching hour of, you know, all of your anesthesiologists that are on here are gonna talk about, man, it is tough, it's tough between 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. And if I could get that more predictable, if I could get, you know, a lot more stuff shoved at the beginning of the day, boy, that would be helpful. And there's opportunity there for for opening operating rooms and it's, you know, desirable for nurse anesthetists sometimes the staff in the morning as opposed to after hours cases. And I think it is just, you know, like being a true consultant in anesthesiology mm-hmm. saying, you know, I provide great clinical care, but really I also know how to run the operating rooms. Like, you know, the person they call is me. Surgeon X calls me to say, figure out how to make this happen. You know, how can I get uh, this gallbladder that's in the ED going, so maybe I don't have to start it at 9 p.m. But you know, is there a way that we can work it in in the schedule? And oftentimes, you know, our uh, our departments of anesthesia are the ones that are most creative,
1: are are most knowledgeable in kind of running the board um, and taking ownership of that. Can you zoom in on that a little bit and give us a couple anecdotes of conversations with hospital execs or with surgeons? sort of identifying problems, playing whack-a-mole with OR efficiency and trying to keep things running smoothly? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh,
0: one of them is, is, you know, a lot of your listeners, a lot of your anesthesiologists will talk about this concept of flip rooms of, you know, hey, we're going to let... You know, say I'm a surgeon, I do my first case, it's two hours long. I start it in one room and then I, and then, you know, they wheel the other patient back to the other room and get that started. You know, meanwhile, that room has been vacant now for two hours while I'm in the opposite room operating. And now that first room I'm in is is vacant for two hours while I'm operating in the other room. And it is, there is, I'm, I, I, there probably are. Experts, I know that there's gonna be a publication next year on the economics of flip rooming. I I don't have, you know, it's embargo data. I haven't read it. I don't know what it says. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it says there's really not a benefit to flip rooming. Um, But, you know, part of it is just, yeah, that's an example of one to say like, you know, your staff is sitting idle 50% of the time. My staff is sitting idle 50% of the time. Is there a way for us to like work creatively? Like, I guarantee that I'm going to crush it from a room turnover time. And your team is going to crush it from a room turnover time. Is there a way that we can bring all those cases into one room so that we are not having 50% of our staff sitting idle, knowing that like we're both aligned? Let's turn the room over as fast as possible. And we're collaboratively going to go to Surgeon Y and say, like, we're going to, we're going we're to pop we're gonna do a pilot project for just two months we're gonna try this. And at the end of this, it is, you say there's absolutely no way, and it's not successful, then we'll talk about what are the other options of maybe going back, but let's try this because it really helps the hospital economics, it helps the Department of Anesthesia mm. economics, and we don't necessarily think it is going to hurt you in terms of turnover time.
1: You also need to, I'm sure, manage you know the surgeon, personality and or preference for schedule and or compensation structure. If you've got a, a doctor who's on RVUs and they got to hit their X thousand, you know, per quarter or per year, and you're going to mess That's with right. my if it, throughput. Yes. There's a lot of uh, stakeholders. There wanna, there are. And- yeah. And that that's why so much of
0: so much of being a kind of a physician leader is persuasion and influence and applying those soft skills and in um, in both in, in communicating to to the stakeholders, as you described.
1: Do you have any either resources or influences for yourself as you think about powers of persuasion that have been most impactful in helping you understand how to do that well? I mean, I think,
0: you know, some of it sometimes is just uh, is like working on emotional intelligence. There's a whole host of books on that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think some of it just comes from experience of of saying, wow, when I messaged it this way, that just went over like a bunch of lead balloons or, you know, when I messaged it this way, uh, this was received, you know, um, this was received well. I would say that, you know, for the vast majority of the folks listening on this call, like it is, you're in the ORs, you're working alongside these surgeons, they're requesting you to do do their cases, they're putting a huge amount of trust in you. So you already have sort of the political capital to be able to have these sorts of conversations with them, uh, with the perioperative staff and with hospital administration in a way that like, you know, while... I'm clinical at certain locations, and Josh in a white coat and scrubs uh, is received one way. Josh in a shirt and tie and a blue blazer is received a very different way by clinicians. And there's there is oftentimes a you know a either distrust or just sort of like yeah you're a consultant. Um, well, I am, but I'm also. You know, practicing anesthesiologist. So this is how I've seen it benchmarked in other locations. But you know, by being a person that's on the ground at that location, a leader at that location, you already have have some, you know, like I said, political capital that you know that folks will listen
1: to you. Makes sense. There's there's a lot. That's a very like, <laughs> loaded and complex set of circumstances in which you're uh, you're operating there, and I I don't envy that, but have a lot of respect for it. I want to pivot. Uh, so, you are a professional of interdisciplinary interest and expertise, and it's not just in medicine. It's That's our, right. Our mutual friend, Dr. Zwade Marshall, shout out to Dr. Marshall, um, yeah. is uh, your partner in uh, Doctor So, tell us a little bit about how you and Dr. Marshall got connected with this, what started as a side project and is now a, a full blown business with a bunch of staff and a an awesome mission.
0: Yeah. So, you know, on a personal note, I had always sort of been interested in personal finance, uh, dating. Sort of all the way back to residency and um, the challenges of a certain salary in Boston, newlywed um, with uh, a mortgage and uh, trying to figure out how to have things go around the block, uh, financially. Um, so that is a perspective that that was a sort of like itch that always existed with me, just enjoyed doing it. And, you know, maybe it's the efficiency type anus of being an anesthesiologist, not sure, but it, it was a, a personal interest. So I and I were fortunate enough to go to the same residency program. I went much earlier, uh, than he did, uh, but we, uh, met you know very serendipitously at a ASA annual meeting and he described you know what he was working on with doc to doc and i was like oh my god you know now in my current role i see a lot of this you know uh, with with some of the physicians that i work alongside the teams that i manage of of physicians that i often am like oh my gosh, like what, what I, I you know, everybody has a different life. Life happens to everybody, but wow, like you, you have no liquidity or, oh my gosh, like you're making a, a, a really good salary. And some of the financial decisions that you, that you're have that you're making are very problematic. So that was, you know, I was coming at add from a, a mid-career or, or an early physician, early career standpoint, but you know, so I was describing, it was like, you know, this is a product, a personal loan product uh, that is for physicians all the way along their journey. And, you know, it resonated with me as a resident, thinking about like, having to take a not being able to afford to move from Boston to my first job, because, you know, my credit card would, would only go to $5,000. I didn't know where I was going to get the money to pay for that to what I was, or my credit card was max, excuse me, but the max was $5,000. And then on the other hand, to what I was seeing kind of real time, uh, with, uh, with my, you know, with, with my teammates, uh, the teams that I managed in, in, in mid career. So, yeah. And, and, you know, we just sort of like had a wonderful conversation and I was like, I am all in on this. How can
1: I help? And, you know, one thing led to another. And so what was the, you know, is the first, obviously it takes, it's a, I've had a lot of these conversations where, you know, you're a couple of friends drinking a beer together at a conference back of a napkin. It's a long distance yeah. from that napkin to, you know, where you are now. So what were some of the key components of like solidifying that journey and getting momentum with the business? I,
0: you know, I, I so the, the process Um, So I was not, you know, Zwadi and his co-founder, Kenton, um, had done a lot of the work by the time um, I came on board in uh, 2019 as a strategic advisor, but there were still things that we were working through before we provided our first loan um little did we know in 6 months there was going to be a global pandemic so always a good time to start to start a company you know um uh before you know a, a once in a millennia uh, or not a millennia but you know once in a hundred year global pandemic and so we you know we had a lot of conversations about things to work through but you know i think this idea of starting a business is, you know, it's it's one that always sort of is like, uh, I think a lot of people have it. And, you know, then you look at the failure rate of those and you mm-hmm. sort of get scared. And I think, you know, I think, you know, by nature as, you know, being risk averse, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist. So first question is, you know, w- what could hurt my patient uh, in this case and how can I prevent that? is, is sort of like an overriding factor. So, you know, you have to overcome that and, you know, asking like where, uh, who who is going to be our consumer? How are we going to give them a product and a team that takes care of them that they absolutely love? And is there a way that we can expand that so that that person can then as a resident or an in-practice doc and say, you know what, I was in your exact same shoes and what really, you know, made my, PGY four year easy or better or so that I could strictly focus on taking care of patients was this product. And so that was kind of the lens that we use as we sort of like built out doc to doc
1: and, and what that personal loan space would look like for physicians. What are you most excited about as you think about doc to doc's expansion and, you know, growing influence and ability to help more and more physicians? I mean,
0: is i think it's the sort of uh it's like the mutual sort of understanding that a that a borrower has of of knowing that it's a company founded by physicians and largely the touch points are provided by a physician and and so you know like when we finished medical school we're in we, we are all a member of that sorority or we're all a member of that fraternity of you know the house of medicine and so there's sort of this already kind of uh established connection there and when uh you are speaking with a colleague fellow physician or a uh, you know, a, you know, a young physician and you're a resident, you're a fellow, that was like, oh my God, that was totally there. I absolutely remember what match day was like. It was a long time ago, but I totally remember, you know, the trepidation associated with opening that envelope. I don't even know how they do it these days. I did it in an envelope on a on a bulletin board. I don't know if it's like yeah, just we a We did it uh, six it years ago it. and
1: I was there for that, and it was yeah. an identical experience.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and and but then there's also just, you know, the sort of uh, when you're an established physician and and maybe you want that opportunity to to your point of like, you know, gosh, it might it might be beneficial for you to buy into an ASC to buy a bond. But it's a lot of money. A lot of people don't have seventy five to one hundred thousand dollars to buy a single bond and don't have that liquidity. And your financial picture may look great, but you need that bolus of cash for that moment to take that opportunity. And, and again, when you speak to them, you can hear the excitement in their voice of like, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. This is going to be great. Wow. I, this is perfect. I needed this money because this is a great opportunity to invest in this opportunity. It, it, it is like meeting a fellow physician along their sort of life journey. Um, as I say, you know, life happens, uh, whatever it is, positive or negative. And uh, it is, you know, collaboratively, collaboratively sort of meeting them on that journey and saying that's why we're here you know is to provide you whatever it is at this time period yeah you know if you get the money and you want to pay it off we would encourage you to do so and uh because you know we want to get you through this period or 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 get you to that opportunity you know uh in as you know quick and seamless and frictionless way possible
1: yeah so for any pgy four fives and sixes out there who are looking at jobs right now the first thing i would tell you to do is negotiate a seventy-five thousand dollars signing bonus for yourself but short of that if you are thinking about transition costs and ways to finance that and if you you know you're looking at options we'll throw a link in the show notes for doctor doc lending you can talk to uh dr lumley and his team and evaluate if that could be a fit for you exactly the only other thing i would say about the sign-on bonus is a lot of
0: practice to say you've got to have work today and have actually filled out your I-9 um, so uh, you know you still you may be seeing uh $75,000 sign-on bonus but you've now moved from your residency program to your new job uh, which is not an inconsequential amount of money to get you there um, mm-hmm. so a perfect example would be if you got a contract in hand and you are a PGY four, five, six, or PGY three, and um, and you've got a contract in hand within six months of graduating, we will give you a, a you know uh, a sort of in practice loan that's very different than the types of loans that we give to uh, both residents and fellows that are earlier in their journey.
1: Cool. This probably goes without saying, but uh, none of what has preceded this part of our conversation is financial advice for you, dear listener. It is not. And so I, there's no uh, implicit or explicit recommendation of a specific product from doctor doc I have gotten to know Dr. Lumley and Dr. Marshall, and I think they're great guys doing good work, but you need to kick the tires on this for yourself to make sure that it is appropriate for you. So uh, let's wrap with that, Dr. Lumley. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, this has been great. It's been great. APM success. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to APMSuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.